Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslowski. If you're ready to learn why the word community makes a better verb than a noun, or how to ask better questions about and within your communities, I have a real treat for you. This is episode number 127. know who you are, you, the wonderful listener, you, whether this is your first time pressing play on this show or your 100th time, I am grateful for your time, attention, and the energy you're going to bring to all the community conversation I'm about to have. Is it presumptuous to say that you're going to get as much out of this episode as I get out of my spreadsheets? And I get a lot out of my spreadsheets. Perhaps... But, but, I believe there is a good chance the next hour is going to make your brain dance with the possibilities of how you can better give in and around the communities that are meaningful to you and get fulfilled and so much back in the process. You know, uh, as I prepare to participate in my sixth straight annual World Domination Summit experience in late June 2018, one in which I've been invited by the event organizers this year to run three, count them, three sessions of an offers and needs market, aka an asset-based community development classic activity, I am thinking deeply about my role in a lot of communities that I belong to and want to contribute to. And if you're hearing these words, World Domination Summit or Offers a Needs Market and thinking, what the heck are those, Joel? Don't worry. I will link to podcast episodes dedicated to each of those topics in the show notes for this episode. Now, both of those things, along with most other important things in my life, revolve around my overarching theme, of bringing people together. And as I'm about to bring you a conversation with one of my favorite bringers of people together, Cormac Russell, I'm going to do something a bit unconventional and lead in to this episode with a story about how I think about community and where I get my sense of belonging. I'll uh, actually borrow the story from the online community I run, The Putty Tribe, since I first shared it there a few months back. Seems rather fitting to share it with you here and now, so let's go. Growing up, I really only had one community, and that was the Jewish community I was born into, and that was, and still is, so important to a number of my family members. I went to a Jewish grade school, went to a Jewish summer camp, went to three-hour-long Saturday morning synagogue services every week, It was a whole lot of being Jewish. As I got into public middle school and continued having relationships with, uh, frankly, a bunch of non-Jewish people throughout my high school experience as well, I realized that the Jewish community was great, and it really was, but there was more to experience. Going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison only reaffirmed my shifting view of community as there were so many campus groups to belong to, all these just fascinating people from around the world, just so much more than the world of Judaism. And when I graduated from college and moved back home to St. Paul, Minnesota, all of a sudden, I had no sense of belonging. I was on my way to becoming an atheist by then, and uh, the corporate workplace or all the text-based video games I was playing didn't exactly meet my community needs. So imagine me just completely on autopilot in my 20s, and I didn't wake up from that slumber, that zombie-ish shambling around until my personal renaissance began uh, almost a decade later at age 30. 
another story for another day. Uh, you can read about it at joelzislavsky.com slash my story. But getting back to this story, uh, I started exploring communities around minimalism and the paleo lifestyle, multipotentiality, and these other new concepts that were just making my, my brain light up with excitement and curiosity and confusion, they were quickly becoming a huge part of not just who I was, but what I represented and what I had to offer the world. And as I look back on those exhilarating and troubling times, uh, the Putty Tribe was really the start of my passion for being in a community of my choosing and learning how to meaningfully contribute in a community, this one online. Uh, Then, of course, I just happened to go to the World Domination Summit for my first year in 2013, and I had my mind blown by the event organizers' intentional filtering and cultivation of so many unconventional people. I'm thinking, hey, uh, I am an unconventional person too. Maybe I should reflect that in my work, my relationships, my health, and everything else. So as I gain steam, I get involved in the Live Your Legend movement, and that really solidified just how community-oriented I had become and how much I wanted to help others become. I remember, this was January 2014, uh, I read my favorite Live Your Legend blog post, Scott Dinsmore's blog post called Bring People Together. That just gave me one of the biggest hell yes to that moments of my life. Um, I just, I doubled down on my commitment as a Live Your Legend local host. I've been gathering people in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area where I live together every month for almost five years now. And that's one way that uh, community shows up in my life. And I get into this more in my role as an event organizer for the Simple Rev thing I used to do in the greater Simple Living movement. And as I do this, I also get introduced for the first time to asset-based community development. You're going to hear me talk and Cormac talk a lot about this. I remember just fumbling around as a first-time event organizer, having 55 people from across North America coming to my city, and I'm putting on a two-day event for them and thinking, there's so much talent. There's so many gifts and skills and perspectives and knowledge to share, but I have no good way to make this a participant-led event as opposed to just a traditional conference-type environment. So I was talking to a future guest of the show, Donnie McLurkin, about uh, Simple Rev 2014, and he suggested I run an offers and needs market. And first of all, I'm like, Donnie, what the heck is an offers and needs market? And he explains to me how we elevate people's gifts and talents to the conscious level, and within a specific community, how we let people say, I have this to give, and I also have these needs. Maybe they're important, maybe they're urgent, maybe there's some combination of both, and we do a non-commercial match of the offers and needs with all of the awesome people who show up for this event. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, this is it. This is perfect. This is the way that I want to allow everybody else to contribute to this event as opposed to have all of the value come from a speaker or a workshop leader or me as an event organizer. So running these offers and needs market and understanding their role in a larger asset-based community development context has completely, completely changed my approach from a community building focused one to a community animating one. Yeah, I know. You're like, community building? You've heard it before. Community animating? Kind of weird, like me. Uh, Really, though, I'm not doing the community building in all of the communities that I belong to. The people, the members in the communities do the building themselves. But my role, where my joy and my gifts really come out, is to bring to life what already exists and is just dormant or ignored. All these gifts, skills, and passions, and potential connections, which 
is why I've taken to the term community animator like a child takes to a cute puppy. Or an adult, if you're me. Uh, All this to say, ABCD, asset-based community development, is the primary way I view community as a whole and my role in it. My guest for this episode, Cormac Russell, is a personal hero of mine in the movement. He will define what I mean by ABCD soon enough. I'm just so dang excited to have you experience his lyrical and wisdom-packed words for yourself. It's just like soothing and insightful and all of the goodness, warm and fuzziness that you can pack into an episode. Cormac and I spoke about how an institutionalized five-year-old changed his life direction. We chatted a bit about why our unexpressed gifts can do tremendous harm if they're left unexpressed. Uh, When to show up as a host or guest in someone's life and how to know the difference between the two. How to get past the sense that someone's either trying to sell you something or sell you out. And maybe above all else, how to ask better and different questions in a community context. This is so good. If you listen to one Smart and Simple Matters podcast episode in the next few months, make it this one. Here we go. Cormac Russell is an inspiring, quotable, and purpose-driven man. And I'm far from the only one who will say that. He's also the managing director of Nurture Development and a faculty member of the Asset-Based Community Development, also known as ABCD, Institute at Northwestern University in Chicago. Over many years and a few continents, he's trained communities, agencies, NGOs, and governments in the powerful and, dare I say, ancestral ABCD approach. If you speak with him, ask Cormac about ABCD neighborhood learning sites and why he likes to paraphrase Benjamin Franklin to say when it comes to community building, well done is better than well said. Cormac, I'm so grateful to have you on this podcast. Welcome. It's wonderful to be here, Joel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, let's start where I typically start a conversation on Spartan Simple Matters, with is something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. Would you share something unique about your environment as a youth or perhaps an ex- experience that you had growing up that had a big impact on how you show up in the world now? Well, I was raised in the west of Ireland and... I suppose growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, there's still a very clear rooted to village and sense of uh, sense of community. So we we grew up in a rural part of Limerick, um, and many of your listeners may not necessarily know of Limerick as a city or as a county, but might be aware of the work of Frank McCourt and the book Angela's Ashes which subsequently became a movie. Uh, so, you know, that, that was the era that my mother was raised in. And um, she would have been raised in the inner city of Limerick and then married my father, who was a Tipperary man who grew up in this most majestic place called the Glen of Arlo, which is uh, absolutely a slice of heaven. So they came together and they bought a little homestead out in a rural village called Patrick's Well. And Patrick's Well, of course, was reputed to have been one of the wells of St. Patrick. <laughs> so at the time, very sparsely populated. Uh, we largely, I often say to my kids that my parents didn't raise me. The fields raised me because mm-hmm. we spent our time just running through the fields. Uh, and um, that, 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 was, that was my childhood. It was very free and easy, very open, very rooted to the land to uh, farming culture, even though we didn't have a farm. Um, so our neighbors, you know, they were few and far between, but we knew them well, knew their their land, and we made dens and tree houses. And in a lot of ways, it was, it was a very beautiful, free kind of childhood. And I think that and a very close uh, childhood relationship to my maternal grandmother, who, for her heritage, for her age, for her time, was unusual in the sense that she had an incredible love of books and an incredible love of community. 
So she gave me a window into where I was and she gave me a window out of where I was. And the two have combined very, very um, centrally in, in, in how I show up in the world as an adult. Growing up when you did and growing up where you did, you've mentioned at least three different places. So I know you said you were rooted to the land and the, the physical place seems to inform who you are and, and what you represent in the world. Mm. The dens and the tree houses that you built, I imagine living in such a remote area, you can't just walk down the road and have whatever you want. You need to, if you don't have it immediately in your family or where you live, you need to go out and you need to find somebody else to do it, whether that's build a den or a tree house. So mm-hmm. this bring, coming together to create, are there mm-hmm. other ways, you know, as you left your home, were there other ways that that continued along where you had that mindset that if I want to do something, maybe it's best to not start to think about how I can do it myself, but how I can invite other people to co-create this with me? Absolutely. Uh, I suppose as life's unfolded, a lot of the most interesting stuff has been the stuff that uh, I've made with other people. Um, and, and, and that, again, comes out of family, out of community. So a lot of the work that I do tends, I suppose the language we use tends to be much more uh, familial, kind, soft language of circles of friends, circles of support. Uh, where we come together, whether it's in acid-based community development work or, you know, in some, I do a lot of creative poetry and stuff like that in my own community life. It's all about coming together. It's all about jamming. It's all about creating something with other people. And and I would say, thinking about it now, that's not necessarily to be confused with problem solving. Um, I think there's very clear distinctions in my mind between creating possibilities, using what you have and coming together with those that uh, you know or, 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 or potentially could know and problem solving. Um, so a lot of the interesting stuff that I engaged with in my life has been more at the level of making and creating with, with neighbors, with near neighbors. Growing up in Limerick, uh, did you feel obligated to do poetry? Since I think most people who think of Limerick... Uh-huh think of the poetry form of Limerick that probably has nothing to do with it, huh? Excepting the people who live in Limerick, I suppose. (laughs) Um, I think it's interesting, though, because um, certainly in the Irish context, um, the Irish story, the story we tell ourselves and the story that's told about us um, is uh, the story of, you know, uh, poets and songwriters and albeit feckless and... um, resistant of institutions. It's not a million miles away from the truth as I understand it about myself either. You know, so um, that's something else growing up that I learned uh, a very healthy caution around institutions and institutional power and how poetry gives you all kinds of spaces to express yourself in a mischievous kind of uh, court jester-like way. So, um, and, I, and I think that is a feature of the Celt um, and, and of, of, of any nation that's experienced, um, you know, a loss of freedom as part of our culture. So poetry is an interesting, it's an interesting way of finding space when space is restricted. And then um, the kind of wistful way that you can use language to, uh, to, to, to assume a swagger. <laughs> even at times when things are tough or or limited. So I think it's no surprising that some of the most beautiful poetry comes out of uh, cultures that have been been pressed or have been uh, restricted in their freedoms. Hmm. I've never thought about the tie between poetry and a healthy caution of institutions. Did you have a personal run-in or experience with any kind of institution uh, in your youth that helped reinforce the cultural... A narrative that had been passed down to you? I think anybody who's paying attention has. Um, so so I was, I suppose, it's a couple of different things. It's just in terms of the limits of institutions and the power of community. One of my very, very early experiences, almost pre-verbally, was I was adopted. So I spent the first two years of my life in an orphanage. Um, and best as I can tell, that was what it was. And there was nothing awful about that at all. 
but uh, I was then adopted by uh, my my parents, uh, my adoptive parents, who I see very much as my parents. And I, and I often think that's kind of a, a really, really powerful seminal experience of where strangers effectively come into a system and they say, we want to make somebody who is within a system, is institutionalized for whatever reason. Um, and we want to make them a member of our family, even though effectively they're not of our blood. They're, they're you know, they are strangers to us, but we want to, um, by, by social alchemy, we want to make them a member of our family. Uh, and that's a very, a very powerful way, I think, of the community bringing somebody who's outside of the community back in again. I think certainly the Ireland of the time where I was put up for adoption would have been an Ireland that would have shamed um, my biological mother uh, for having uh, a child out of wedlock, as they would have called it. So it's very, very interesting. So you have the institution of the church, you have the institution of the formal care system, and then you have, you know, my parents and my biological mother. So there's a very early story. Um, and it's a story, you know, that I tell without really any um, sense of foreboding or, you know, judging. But it's a story not about the good or the bad. It's the story about the limits. Um, an institution could not have raised me unilaterally. Mm. My mother for whatever reason, didn't raise me unilaterally. Um, but um, Michael and Betty, my parents, stepped forward from a community and they said, you know, we'd like we'd like to um, be parents of the heart. And I often think they didn't give birth to me in the traditional way. They, they gave birth uh, to the heart. And, and sort of saying, in a way, it's really interesting in terms of right relationship. You know, the, the, the institutional world saying, yes, this is the way it should be, you know, um, and, and, and kind of stepping back. Um, so, so that would have been an early experience. W- watching the dynamics in Ireland as the institution of the church started to kind of lose its grip on um, the influences and, you know, how it could define what, what was a good life and stuff like that. And people became a little bit more free. Um, I, I grew up at that time as well, and of course, beginning to learn about uh, you know how 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 that relates. And I've I've written a lot about that. Um, so I think those kinds of experiences at a very very young age, going to school, always always a great learning. If you're paying attention, you suddenly wake up and realise that if you get an A. It's because some other poor child got a D mm. <laughs> and you realize this is how the world is kind of organized. And that became um, that became uncomfortable very early on. I didn't have the words at the time, but I just um, I, I got a, I got a real sense of, no, that's, that's not right. That's uh, that's not the way it it's not the way it could be um, if things were a little bit more uh, humane. Yeah. Well, you mentioned good life, and I know you've written about your version of a good life, not somebody else's. I'll actually link in the show notes to a blog post you wrote on Nurture Development called The Good Life Conversation, which is incredible. There are about 20 questions on there that you can ask yourself or you can ask others to really get a sense of what what does it mean to have a good life, to live a good life. Perhaps we'll get back to there. Uh, Kind of going forward, though, and being the kid who gets an A at the expense of somebody who gets a D, you and I both believe that humans shouldn't be graded on a curve, that we should be viewed not necessarily as something where we're on the far end of the spectrum, where we're um, deficient in some ways, but celebrated for our gifts, our talents, our skills, what we can contribute to people we're of service of or in community with. How did this, it sounds like from the moment that you were adopted at age two, community was just a part of you and had to be a part of you. Mm. Were there a certain sequence of events that folded that got you formally into the world that you and I know as asset-based community development? Yeah. So, so, so the story, um, which is constantly changing and unfolding, but the stories I understand it really is, is, is a story that folds into itself. So I, um, started my career, um, interested and with a background form background in psychology so I started working uh, with the Irish Health Board 
and was involved in uh, really a very early stage of what was called an early expression of what was called community care. So this was at a time when a lot of the older religious institutions were were closing down. These these institutions would have provided various kinds of care um, for children who were wards of court or, you know, for whatever reason the state had to look after. And so you see, you see my point when I say the story falls into the story, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. So it's a really not, not I often feel that um, people find their life course um, falls into, into itself. So, you know, it's not surprising given my early experience that I would be drawn to this way of working and so on. But what happened was as these religious institutions started closing down and we started uh, working to, as a health board, try and open up new expressions of care uh, for children who, who, who couldn't be looked after at home or weren't being looked after at home or whatever way you care to put it, what we began to realize was that the institution was profoundly incompetent at doing this unilaterally. So, so attempting to try to take kids from big institutions, rent a house, for example, in a neighborhood, and then put them in there uh, and call that community care was just profoundly inauthentic. And we, we were acutely aware of that. Um, so very, very early on in my practice, I came to be aware that uh, my early story and this experience were really grating up against each other. And so I was profoundly uncomfortable with uh, a lot of these inauthentic expressions. They were neither community-based nor were they caring. So the term community care was used, but it was just language and it had no true meaning, no true expression. Well, I've always, and again, I learned this from my mother and my grandmother particularly probably, is, you know, if, if, if you're getting angry, you're not getting change. So I didn't, you know, initially it made me angry, it made me uncomfortable. But it didn't take very long for me to kind of go, no, actually, this is, this is a challenge. We need to figure out something much more uh, authentic and substantive around this. And uh, so that, I think, was the opening for me into out of psychology, if you like, or out of just working with individuals and much more into actually this is an environmental, this is an ecological challenge. And so I started opening up to questions like, well, if we were able to really build a bridge between these young people's lives and genuine you know, reciprocal relationships in a neighborhood, even if the neighborhood is not their own. Um, what would that look like? What what would we do? And who who would I be within that? Um, and so everything else has wrapped itself around that question for the last well, <laughs> last try thirty years. So so that was the question. That continues to be the question. And it seminally happened when a five year old turned to me and said to me in one of these homes. Uh, one of these houses, he took me from my mother. He mm. took me from my neighborhood. He put me here. I have no body I can call a friend. I have no connections. So how is this better? Yeah. And that, that was that. And, and everything else is inconsequential. I'm much, so I was pretty agnostic about what I, you know, what would be a way to show up in that child's life. He's an adult now and married and so forth. But, you know, in a way that would show up in that child's life that would actually uh, enable him to have a good life and also to be the co-creator of a good life for other people uh, wherever uh, he showed up. And um, I like to think that um, asset-based community development and other such uh, windows into how to respond in that way were kind of besides the point and he is the point. Right. Well, we've mentioned uh, ABCD a number of times and for folks who Mm. are not as familiar as you are, especially in me to a more limited extent, could you define that the way that you understand it or the way that you practice it? Sure. One of my favorites um, ways of defining it or capturing it, the essence of it is, um, something that um, Alec Mansky, a friend of mine uh, 
from Canada says he, he has two words that summarize asset-based community development, and it is enough already. Um, and, and it's this this idea that we are enough already. If we can find a way of taking the things that are disconnected in our lives, which are rich and abundant, and supporting them to become connected productively so we can see that together we are rich and we are abundant. And so in practical terms, it's this idea that um, every every human being has gifts, um, has capacities, and that these gifts and capacities as a necessity of a good life need to be discovered and brought into expression. And that actually, if they're not brought into expression, uh, what can happen is they can turn on us like stagnant water and they can actually destroy us. People don't often think about this, that gifts unexpressed can actually do tremendous harm. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is to say when you think about them in connection with other people, with culture, uh, with with a shared economy and um you know, uh, a, a rich, a rich environment. That all of the possibilities that that presents uh, are our starting point. So, you know, this simple idea of if you want a good life, um, start by figuring out how you can use what you have to secure what you need. And a third observation that I'd make: um, there's a poet, um, David Wagner, <clears throat> and he has a wonderful poem called "Lost." And in that poem, his uh, two lines, which I think are really seminal, he says, wherever you are is here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. So I suppose the other feature of asset-based community development is it's, it's really about making the invisible visible. It's about acknowledging that in an individualistic consumer society, there's lots of stuff that's right under our nose that's incredibly valuable when it comes to having, um, you know, a a satisfying life and a sensational life um, that we have been trained, and I would say even etherized, to forget. So I think essentially asset-based community development is the act of remembering in the sense of recalling what we've forgotten to pay attention to right now, here and right now, but also remembering in the sense of it is the antidote to a dismembered or a dislocated society. Hmm. Yeah, act and action seem to feature pretty prominently in the, the not just the words that you're using, but the spirit behind them too. This kind of what you're telling, at least to me, is speaking to something that I've heard you say. I've seen you write uh, in a number of places, and I'm paraphrasing, but community is understood best as a verb as opposed to a noun. And the exactly. unsaid or unrealized implication of that sediment is that community becomes the result of the energy, the action we put into the group that we belong to. It's not just some static thing that we point people to and say, hey, hey, uh, look over there. Go get in that community and you'll feel better. You need to be a participant and give. Do you have, it, whether, I mean, you've been all over the world and practicing this and you've seen so many things. Mm-hmm. Is there a recent or maybe some kind of foundational story where you like to explain how community is best seen as a verb instead of a noun? Mm. Well, if you, if you sort of take this idea and practice, what, what you'll probably find is that a lot of it is starting with the discovery and then moving to connection and then moving to action. So, so, so there's this element of saying that, for example, if a, if, a, if a community, I'm thinking of so many different communities now because I've been traveling a fair bit for the last few months, and say if a, if a community like the community that I saw uh, last week when I was in Australia, um, at uh, this community just outside of Melbourne, Mont uh, Rose community. And I spent about an hour listening to them, having a really complex conversation about an anxiety that they have. They, they've got this um, very, very large roundabout uh, in, in, in the center of their community. And they're talking, you know, the, the authorities are talking about uh, taking that away and putting in a bypass okay and so there's incredible anxiety about this bypass you see and um, 
as I'm listening, I'm thinking, totally understand, totally get their anxiety and everything that they're, they're saying is legitimate. But one of the things that the conversation is doing is it's, it forecloses on every other conversation. And so we began to kind of just explore with them by asking them to share stories, simple stories about what they and their neighbors do to make things better. And suddenly, you know, the bypass, which continues to be an important concern, gets put back in its place. And you start hearing all of these practical stories about people showing up and taking action, but also stories, I think, that are about people searching and exploring. Um, And so, yes, community is a verb for sure, but to get to that point in a rich sense, I think there's something really fascinating about what the community sort of went on to talk about in the conversation. So they had this wonderful story sharing about all of the things that they do uh, currently to make things better. And then I said, so what, you know, what's the community looking like in a few years time? And then they had to kind of pivot a little bit from that, those wonderful stories to, so what else do we have, uh, you know, um, that we could use to kind of create this story of tomorrow, this, this alternative future. And then they're moving into possibilities and they're searching. And I love that phase, uh, Joel, because what they're actually doing at that moment is an act of revelation. You know, they're, they're beginning to say, gee, here are all of the things like we'd love, for example, one of the things they said is we would love to have a place where we could meet and have a glass of wine or have a you know, coffee or whatever people like. But actually around here at the moment, that's easier said than done. And then somebody says, but hang on a second, you just told us a story about X and so on. And they start making the connections. So they're into this mode of saying, hang on. When we pay attention to all the times that we have acted as community, there are the seeds of possibility in there for how we can show up tomorrow. And I love that pivot, you know, that people are saying, well, look, we've done it before and we don't have to always do it this way again. But gee, look at all of the possibilities and the momentum. So it's almost like the action has created civic muscle within them, which enables them to do something new. Now, part of what I really want to invite them into is a conversation about agility rather than repetition. So I was saying you have the muscle, but you can use it in a lot of different ways. You don't have to keep doing the same thing. So, you know, um, there, there is this part of saying to people, so how do you have a conversation about tomorrow? that respects yesterday and today, but doesn't get incarcerated by it? That is a great question. <laughs> you ask lots of wonderful questions. This is one of the reasons why I enjoy your work and your personal style so much <laughs> is a lot of it is question-based as opposed to coming in with a solution and an answer, just hearing stories and asking questions and letting people get the hint of insight. Oh, well, maybe maybe we could do that. Maybe that is possible. And it, you, for a lot of folks, especially here in the United States where I live, you mentioned that uh, some people say we've done it before and everybody has done it before. But a lot of folks forget quickly that we've done this before. We've come together to figure out what kind of resources we have within the community context to provide to relieve our own issues the way that we perceive them as opposed to the way that some external organization defines them. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges that I struggle with, and I'm sure it differs from place to place that you go to, is privacy. And I see trust. Perhaps it's not a two-sided spectrum, but there's trust on one side and there's privacy on the other. And for a lot of people that I interact with, the default is privacy, not trust. And sometimes I'll go and I'll strike up a conversation and somebody will kind of tap me on the shoulder, give me the look that says, she just wants to be left alone, like leave her alone. And I'm thinking... Sure, I understand this concept of respecting somebody's privacy, but what if somebody has said that every single time somebody wanted to initiate a conversation with her or a group that she's with? So how do you relieve that tension, Cormac, in the way that you practice ABCD between trust and privacy? I think some of it is about uh, just checking our own 
way of showing up and maybe our own privilege to an extent. I, I often feel that that particular dilemma surfaces when we show up more as a host in people's lives as opposed to a guest. So to me, you know, the question is, how might I be in a relationship with somebody where they're more likely to open up space for us both to be together? And and part of that is, is that's a question about being a guest in somebody's life. Um, so, you know, what what are the things that I can do as a guest in somebody's life that extends that invitation for them to move out of private property <laughs> and move into a kind of a public or a commons-based experience. And I'm, I'm sure that's about really going at the speed of trust, figuring out how to be a guest. One of the things that really strikes me is, is how so many people who do the community work that they're doing, and they do it wonderfully, um, and they have the confidence to kind of, they feel welcome, really, to um, insinuate themselves into other people's lives. They show up as people with an agenda. And I think when people go into privacy, they go into privacy because somehow they've read that showing up as you're either trying to sell me something or you're trying to sell me out. And so I think it's a two-way, it's a checking. I often feel that, you know, it's not just that this person's retreating into privacy, but that in a consumer society, they may, for whatever reason, be overhosted. And what we might need to be checking in our practice is, am I, am I being a good guest in their lives? And what, you know, what, what, what do I need to cultivate in my own practice uh, in that regard? I've just found that personally useful when people have presented uh, kind of uh, as recoiling or retreating back into um, into private space, um, that sometimes it's because they feel overwhelmed. You mentioned consumer society a couple of times, and I also have issues with being identified as a consumer or being a part of a mainstream culture, which is based on materialism and consuming, not necessarily creation, especially co-creation. I'm, I'm sure you could rank 20 or 50 things that we would need to culturally shift or our institutions would need to shift in order to make perhaps the ABCD approach the default one to bringing people together. Is there something in particular that you're actively working on um, to push against these invisible barriers that present us from, or prevent us, I should say, from having ABCD work better or be yeah. easier? Yeah. Well, you see, it's all linked, Joel. It's linked to your privacy questions, you see. And in my mind, there's no point in trying to uh, change the contractual institutional world um, because it's like, it's like, you know, punching against or pushing against steel. The harder you push or punch, this sort of weaker you become, the stronger the steel seems to be. I think the question isn't how do we reform um, or change the institutional world or this kind of anti-culture of consumerism. I think the question is, to go back to, you know, the, the scenario of the individual retreating from, uh, from a, a kind of a, a community conversation into private space, I think the question is, could we possibly cultivate a conversation around what people care about themselves rather than what we want them to care about, which helps them to begin to think about what do they have locally that's within their threshold of control that they could begin to tap into in a joyous way? And I think that's the question. And if we can have that conversation more, in small local places, what ends up happening as consequences, you grow culture. That's the antidote to the consumer society. So it's about it's it's less about changing the institution and more about enlarging free space. You know, literally, we have to think about what does it feel like in the in other words to be a producer um, when you're tapping into local stuff that's within your influence and the influence of near neighbors. What does that feel like? What does that do? It, it, that's the joy of creation. That's the joy of producing. That's the joy of shared economy as a whole.
you know, restoring restoring um, the commons, etc. There's a lot of different language that people use. But if you simplify it, you know, and kind of think about it in terms of power, every single conversation we have is a conversation within which a choice is made. And the conversation choice is, do I decide that whatever it is I care about can be advanced by focusing on an external asset that I ha- is not local and I have no control over? Or do I begin to think about what I care about in a way that taps into resources that are local and within my control or within my influence controls or on language, but within my influence or stewardship? And I think the people who are making the choice to start with the local are the people who are beginning to recognize that instead of reforming our institutional world, that what they're involved in is refunctioning the community world. So form follows function, you know, and I think an awful lot of people are expending incredible energy trying to reform our systems when in fact where the action is at, is at the edge, it's at the fringe in refunctioning our communities and our relationships. And everybody gets to play. If you breathe, you're in. There's nobody who can't contribute to that space. So that's the great joyous inclusion-based space that says to everybody, there's no redundant capacity. Everybody is needed in this space. And we don't have to have a legislation uh, change. We don't need a better president. We don't need anything accepting each other. It won't resolve everything. Of course it doesn't resolve everything. But but it's a choice. You can choose to occupy Wall Street or you can choose to occupy your street. Now, it's not an either-or choice. But the question is, if you really ultimately do want better institutions, and none of us wants institutions that oppress us or create a 1984 scenario, um, but if we want that, then we have to decide where we're going to start. And the irony, paradox, whatever way you want to frame it, the, the, the beautiful, sweet irony is, is that actually the stronger our communities become, the more we can hold different institutions that are hatched out of community to account. And I think that's been part of the challenge around the world. Consumerism has consumed, you know, if you consume something enough, eventually it consumes you. And it's that kind of uh, idea, uh, Eric Hopper's idea, that you can never, ever get enough of what you don't really want. So the consumer society, I refuse to call it consumer culture because it's not a culture, it's an anti-culture. It's the opposite of culture. The consumer society, I think one of the great challenges of the consumer society is is that it just brings us to that external. I see this, I saw this a number of years ago in Rumbeck, in a village in Rumbeck, you know, we were talking about a generator for a well. And the conversation, I think, in most Western contexts would have gone to, you know, where can we get the funding or where can we get the resource to buy the generator? In that conversation, in that village, the conversation was, well, you know, we've got all these kids running around with incredible amounts of energy. We have bamboo. We've got people who know how to actually build in all kinds of creative ways using bamboo. And before the conversation got very far at all, they had invented a Ferris wheel, essentially, that the kids play on, which acts as a generator and creates the well. You know, So here's an example, a naturally occurring example of a people whose culture it is to default in all conversations to how can we start by using what we have to secure what we need? Firstly, let's, let's, let's start there. And then once we've exhausted that, let's look externally to see how we could get a little bit of help, which would extend our capacity. And once we've done that, then let's have a conversation from a place of real civic power that says, well, look, here are all the things we do around here. Here's our culture. Here's what val- you know, values we have. And look, these are the things we can't do. We would like the institutions to do. So this is what you can do for us. This is how we can work together. But this this is ours. This is our work. This is civic work, you see. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that consumer society 
causes us not to ask, what can we do ourselves and what can we do with some help? It causes us to go to the third and final question. What can outside agencies do to us, for us or with us instead of what can we do together with civic power? And that's what we're now I suppose, beginning to see, you know, if you could frame it in this way, I would say what we are beginning to see in the world in terms of the rise of extremism and populism and far-right thinking, what I think we're beginning to see is the absence of sufficient energy and consciousness around that space of civic connectedness and productivity. And the beauty is, is of course, I think lots of wise people who are indigenously wise, not just intellectually in the classic kind of Cartesian sense, but indigenously wise are now showing up very practically. And the backyard revolution, ironically, you see it, I saw it in the States when I was touring there. The great irony is, is that the backyard revolution is probably more vibrant now under this administration than previous administrations because things aren't getting worse. They're getting clearer. And so people are beginning to understand the stakes. Uh, and part of the role of what you do and what I do is, I think, to put some language around that or at least to begin that kind of questioning so that we can collectively say, you know, so what is happening? And, and how, do we, how do we really pay attention to this so we can, uh, we can build the next generation? Yeah, well, we can frame the conversation however you like. I enjoy the way that you do it, and I like the language that you use, even talking about something that is beyond ABCD. Um, we don't really have time to talk about it, but ABCDE, asset-based community-driven mm-hmm. efforts, as opposed mm-hmm. to doing the building um, yeah. and having somebody else do the building for the community. It's the community that's doing the building themselves. That's they right. are driving the efforts. I wish that's we could right. talk more about ABCDE, and perhaps that will become more common than ABCD over time. Mm-hmm. We could talk about so many other things, but perhaps for another day. At this point, though, is there anything that we did not talk about that you would like people to know? There's so much, but I, I, I think that whole piece around asset-based, community-driven efforts, you know, um, and even getting beyond language like assets, I, I think the critical thing always um, is to say that what we're trying to talk about here is not a panacea, you know, so the, the, the idea that there's things that communities do best um, and that when people get together and are productive in small places, that they can create things that are of real consequence, like health and safety and so forth, is um, is an idea that's not new, but I think is uncommon, you know. And so I think it's really, really important to just lift it up. And a lot of um, what we maybe talk, about in our own workshops and um, in, in, in the journey that I'm taking with people is just that whole piece of valuing or making the invisible visible. And I think that's worth lifting up. Maybe we haven't had time to do that sufficiently, but that the stuff that we're talking about that's of value is largely invisible um, or disconnected. And so if people were looking for something practical that they could do in their own neighborhood, I think just show up and be curious. We spend a lot of time in this world trying to help people. And largely we predefined what that helping needs to look like and what the worthy outcome is. And so for me, I would say just in kind of summary, I think it's more important to form contact than sell our content. Um, And I think that's when people come out of their private space, when they know we genuinely want contact without trying to sell them content. I think the second thing is is to emphasize the value of discovery over delivery. We have so many voluntary organizations, and even in our own impulse to help or to parent or to be good neighbors, we're delivering stuff to people, you know. And I wonder whether it isn't just of great value to say, hey, we're just let's discover, you know. Um, let's just spend time really discovering each other, discovering this place, discovering what's possible, being curious. And I think the final thing, and you know, I, I love to say this, and so I'll emphasize it again near the end, is that we're choosing all of the time where we put our accents. And I think we live in a world where the common accent is on what's wrong. 
And I have no issue, actually, with paying attention to life's injustices and addressing what's wrong. But if we want to address those things in a way that includes people and doesn't stigmatize them, then start with what's strong within them and around them. I'm a great believer in presuming competence, regardless of the label that people have been given, and just lifting those labels off people, lifting those labels off people, and seeing people as they are. I, I don't want to romanticize it, but people have competencies, they have strengths, so, so do the places they live in. So starting with what's strong and using what's strong to address what's wrong and making what's strong even stronger still. So let's, you know, kind of move into that creative space as well. Well, if people want to move into some of your creative spaces, where would you like them to go next uh, to learn more about you, uh, ABCD, or anything that revolves in your wonderful orbit? Um, You know, if people are interested in our work, we write a weekly blog. That's definitely worth jumping into. You can get... uh, on that particular groove by going to our website, nurturedevelopment.org. And um, lots of stuff there that's intended to be a treasure trove. So dipping into that would also be well worth your while, all free, all meant to be within the, the bounds of the commons. Um, so very, very practical uh, ways of just getting out on Monday morning, either as a neighbor or if you're interested in the work as a practitioner, um, and how you can show up in people's lives, not as an insider or an outsider, but an alongsider, um, then there's lots of resources there uh, about that. And the, the resources try to be authentic and honest and acknowledge the dilemmas uh, in doing this kind of work. So um, we also talk about um, the tough parts of the work and some of the issues that we face on the ground uh, in practice. Um, also, you can go on to the ABCD website. So that's simply abcdinstitute.org. Uh, and again, a huge uh, treasure trove of um, very useful, practical and theoretical, so conceptual and applied resources there, uh, which I think you'll enjoy. And then finally, um, lots of videos. And a lot of people seem to um, quite enjoy the shorter um, TED Talks. So there's a number of TED Talks and, you know, shorter videos that uh, will will come up uh, if you do a search of asset-based community development. And, um, yeah, so any, any amount of material. But I would really say that probably the richest space to tap into is other people who are doing the work. So um, if you go on social media, um, on Twitter, for example, the hashtag ABCD or ABCDE, which I kind of tend to favor, but ABCD or ABCDE, you will find an awful lot of co-conspirators, possibly even near where you live, who are practically uh, just doing it. And um, I always find that's the best that's the best way to learn is just connect with people and get out and do it. And of course, your greatest, greatest ally and certainly mine too, is your near neighbor. So um, you'll learn far more from your next door neighbor at a barbecue uh, than you'll ever learn from any of our sites. But uh, I'd be, um, nonetheless, I'd be delighted uh, to connect with people and uh, hear their thoughts. So we've got lots of platforms. Do, do share your comments and do stay in touch. All right. Sometimes some things are as easy as A, B, C, D. Or A, B, C, D, E, if you like. Cormac and I, we are curious folks. We would both like to know what shifted for you during this episode. Maybe what you plan to do differently from now on when you're in community or when you're thinking about community with other folks. You can share your perspective and your action plan in a comment on the show notes page. That's at joelzeslovsky.com slash S-A-S-M-127. You can do it in a tweet to Cormac. He is uh, at Cormac Russell. That's C-O-R-M-A-C-R-U-S-S-E-L-L. Or, hey, wherever else we might overlap online. I got to say, the show notes page for this episode, it is especially groovy. So please explore the links to all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more Sweet, sassy molassiness. Yes, 
sweet sassy molassiness. Just turned it into a verb. An adjective? I don't know. I got to work on my vocabulary, as you can tell. All that good stuff is in the show notes at joelzeslovsky.com slash S-A-S-M-127. Really, it's going to take a collective effort to move our various cultures from a focus on the institution or individual back to where it's been for the vast majority of human existence, the community. So if you got something out of this episode or you just generally dig the show, please share it with at least two people and do it now. Before you forget, before you get distracted and go on to something else, this message needs to get out to more people so that we can make our communities truly places of belonging, truly places of sharing, truly places of honoring gifts and meeting the needs that each of us have within the community itself. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zeslovsky. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.